Near the beginning of the uh, classic film, Dead Poets Society, Robin Williams calls on a student, the unfortunately named Mr. Pitts, to read for the class from the British poet Robert Herrick. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Words that uh, many of us have probably read ourselves in high school English class. The boys in the class then proceed to parade down the hall, looking at class photo after class photo. In some of the photos, they see recent graduates. Others, however, are now fertilizing the daffodils, as Robin Williams puts it. But even while dead, he says, they still whisper their legacy to the students that day. Carpe diem. Seize the day. Now, it may surprise you to know that there's a book in the Bible that largely has that same message, although the Bible's motivation for seizing the day is much different than it was for Mr. Pitts and the other boys at the Welton Academy. And we find that message this morning in the book of Ecclesiastes, a book that, along with Proverbs, is considered to be one of the wisdom books in the Bible. The only problem is that the wisdom in Proverbs makes a lot of sense. A wife of noble character is worth more than rubies, things like that. But the wisdom in Ecclesiastes sometimes doesn't seem to make any sense. In fact, it's confusing and contradictory. And indeed, that's the theme of the book, how we can fear God in a world that is confusing and frustrating, in a world that sometimes doesn't seem to make any sense. And this morning we'll be reading from Ecclesiastes 3, where we find one of the most famous poems of all time, more famous even than Robert Herrick. And it's a poem about time. And in typical Ecclesiastes fashion, what at first seems like a beautiful poem quickly becomes just another reason for frustration and despair. Listen to what uh, this poem observes about our world. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to mourn, a time to laugh and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Have you ever said to somebody, it's time? Sometimes that sentence doesn't even need an object, does it? It's time for what? Time for dinner? Time for bed? Sometimes it can simply be enough to say, it's time. I can think of uh, a couple examples from this past month, one silly and one serious. A a few weeks ago, I walked through uh, my backyard and opened up the doors to the little shed we have back there, and inside I saw bag after bag of Uh, broken drywall and boards with nails sticking out. I saw an old television, an old sink, and an assortment of other junk. And I said, it's time. May 18th was coming, one of my favorite 
days of the year, spring garbage day in Highland Park, where you can put almost anything on the curb, and within a few hours, it will disappear, and you'll never have to see it again. I said, it's time, time to stop clinging to all this junk that I'm never going to use again. Well, two days later, I heard the same phrase again, it's time. I was up at uh, Lake Forest Cemetery with Brad and Lori Dickinson, a couple from our uh, church family here, and a number of their family members from out of town. Brad's dad had died the previous week, and after two funerals and a few thousand miles traveled back and forth from Florida, they had finally arrived at the gravesite. And we had a brief uh, committal service there with some uh, prayers and scripture readings. And then every family member had an opportunity to say a last goodbye. And after that, uh, a few moments passed, and I don't know if it was Brad or one of his siblings, but someone said, it's, t- it's time. No one needed to say anything else. It almost would have been inappropriate to finish the sentence. You know, it's time to go to lunch or it's time to leave. That would have seemed a little flippant. You know, we're done here at the grave. Let's go grab a bite. But it did seem appropriate just to say, it's time. And the reason is, in the rhythm of our lives, God has ordered things in such a way where there are appropriate times for every activity under heaven, as our poem says. There's a time to throw my junk away, and it's clear when that time has come. There's a time to say a final goodbye, and it's clear when that time has come. And our poem lists a number of appropriate times. And aside from the first pair, which says uh, there's a time to be born and a time to die, which makes sense as sort of the first in a long list, aside from that pair, there really seems to be no discernible strategy in the poem. There doesn't seem to be any order to how things are listed. The point is simply to capture the totality of life using all the extremes that we encounter. Some of our experiences deal with beginnings and endings, like in verse 2, a time to plant and a time to uproot. Some of our experiences deal with emotions, like in verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh. Some deal with possessions, like me on garbage day in verse 6. There's a time to keep and a time to throw away. And for all these different activities, there seems to be an appropriate time and an inappropriate time. God has created the world in such a way where different activities are appropriate for different times. And in fact, sometimes completely different responses are called for. That's what the point of all these opposites. It depends on the situation. Take verse uh, 7, for example. There's a time to be silent and a time to speak. That's an issue that we see come up often in the book of Proverbs, where it says, you know, sometimes you should answer the fool, and sometimes you shouldn't. The wise person knows when that right time is to answer the fool. Uh, The other week, Julie finally caved in and agreed to watch Happy Gilmore with me. And there's a scene in that movie where Happy is golfing in a pro tournament, and he's constantly being hounded by a heckler, the kind of person that the Bible would call a fool. Now, if Happy Gilmore is wise, he will know that that tournament is not the time to answer the fool. It's best to ignore him and go about his business. But if he is unwise, which he is, of course, he will get sucked in and lose his focus. And the reason is there's a time to be silent and there's a time to speak, and it depends on the situation. God has 
ordered the world in such a way where a certain approach is best at certain times. Now, I will confess that the reason I wanted to look at this poem today was uh, a largely selfish reason, although I hope that it will be beneficial to many of you as well. As you know, if you were here last week, we mentioned that this is a time of transitions for many of us here at Christ Church. Several, several families, for instance, this past week celebrated uh, graduation days. But perhaps even more significant than that in the life of this church is the fact that many of you, beginning with uh, Tracy and Grant Sherrills last week, like we mentioned, many of you are moving away from Highland Park for a variety of reasons. Some job transfers, some new military orders, some to be closer to family, a variety of reasons. Now, some of you know that uh, I am a roster keeper. You might say I'm a roster obsessor. For instance, I think I can uh, pretty easily name for you all 85 scholarship players on the Northwestern football team, along with a number of details you probably don't want to know. And in the same way, I keep and constantly review a roster of those of us who attend regularly here at Christ Church. As of last week, my roster had 139 adults and 55 kids. In the next two months, though, just from what I know ahead of time, those numbers will be reduced by at least 21 adults and 18 kids. It's a season that I have been dreading for uh, quite some time, to be honest. Since we launched this church uh, back in 2011, our trajectory has been uh, slowly but surely decidedly upward in just about every measurable category, giving, attendance, volunteer involvement, things like that. And it now seems like there may be a season where that trend is difficult to continue. But we read here in verse 1 that there is a season for every activity under heaven. And in many of our cases, this just happens to be the season to depart, or a season to say goodbye. And it begs the question for us, how should we respond to those changes? And really, the same question applies to any area of our life, not just what's happening here on the corner of Green Bay and Laurel, although that's obviously my focus for obvious reasons. It's the same question that we need to ask ourselves anytime we encounter circumstances that are confusing and beyond our control. And we see situations happening all around us and changes, and we don't know, we don't know what God is thinking. How should we respond? And as we read on in our uh, passage here, I want to consider briefly two possible responses. And the first response is a negative one. Frustration and exasperation. We can respond to circumstances that are beyond our control by throwing up our hands and saying, thanks a lot, God. You know, you pulled the rug out from under me again. Thanks a lot. Look uh, with me at verse 9. What does the worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Have you ever sensed that uh, God is using something you're going through for a larger purpose, but that you have no idea what that larger purpose is? I get this feeling all the time, and I think I feel a lot of pressure in that regard as a pastor because I feel like 
I should have some of these answers for people. I remember, uh, for instance, sitting down with Sean a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about uh, the future in terms of job possibilities and such. And I'm, say, you know, I'm saying to him, you know, Sean, you are a really gifted guy. You have a lot of skills in terms of you know, interpersonal skills, ministry skills, things like that. I get, a, you know, I get this feeling that God is going to use what you've gone through over the last 18 months after the, uh, the serious stroke. I get the feeling that God is going to use that experience in a way that has a significant impact. But you know, I really have no idea what that's going to look like. It can be frustrating. Have you ever been frustrated like that? That's what Ecclesiastes is talking about here. If you read the beginning of verse 11 by itself, you think, wow, this is one of the most beautiful and encouraging messages in the Bible. He says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. You think, well, that's such great news, right? That's something I could put on a poster and hang it in my office or something like that. Except, Ecclesiastes says, it's terrible news. Look at the end of verse 11. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So, God has ordered the world in such a way where there's an appropriate time for everything. That's what he means when he says he's made everything beautiful in its time. Things fit together in a beautiful way. It's like life is a rich tapestry of contrasting colors where every threat, every thread seems to fit together in, in, in an elegant way. In addition to that, he says, God has set eternity on our hearts, which just means we sense that there's a bigger picture out there than just my life, right? It's about more than just me. I'm a part of a bigger story. The problem is, only God knows what the bigger story is. What good does it do for me to recognize that there's an order to creation if I can't figure out what the order is? What good is it for me to recognize that there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven if I can't figure out how all the times fit together? It would be like, for instance, playing an unfamiliar sport. The other week, I saw the movie Invictus about Nelson Mandela and the South African rugby team. Now, when I watch rugby, I get the sense that there are rules. They're, they're similar to football, which rules I understand, but they're not exactly the same. Now, if someone were foolish enough to ask me to play rugby, I would be lost out there. I get the sense that there is some sense of order, but I don't understand the big picture. So it would be very frustrating, and I would be destined to fail. Now, after playing my rugby match or game or whatever it's called, after playing rugby, someone might ask me, aren't you glad that rugby has such logical and consistent rules? And I would say, sure, I'm glad. That's great. It's great that rugby has all these rules, but it doesn't do me any good because I don't understand them. And in the same way, someone might ask you, aren't you glad that there is a time for everything, that there's a time to be born and a time to die? Aren't you glad that our lives are woven together in such beautifully intricate ways? And you would say, yeah, I'm glad about that, but I'm also frustrated because I don't understand how it all works. And that frustration is the first of two possible responses to the changing seasons of life all around us. And frankly, it's probably my default response, and that's probably true of many of us as well. I was talking to uh, Becky Heller this week, and as I just mentioned, something like 
that one-third of her lighthouse kids are leaving over the next two months. One-third. And I'm thinking, I'm sure God has some plan in all of this, but it's very frustrating not knowing what it is. Ecclesiastes here is so frustrated that he says, it's almost like God is toying with me. He's given us the gift of eternity in our hearts, but it's a gift that tortures us. Some gift that is. Well, is that how you respond when you don't understand what God is doing? That's totally understandable if you do. But as we read on, we see that there is another option. Look with me at verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. Whatever is has already been, and what will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. So he says, there's nothing better than to be happy and to do good while we live. In other words, seize the day. Enjoy the eating and the drinking and the satisfaction that God has granted us in our lives. Rather than live in frustration over the fact that I can't control everything I want to, we have an opportunity to live in joy and thanksgiving because God has given us a gift. That's what he says in verse 13. Everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. The times and changing seasons in our lives can drive us crazy, especially if you're a planner like me. Or they can be a context in which to rejoice and to do good and even to enjoy our labor, to seize the day. So what's the difference between the seizing the day that Ecclesiastes calls us to and the kind of uh, eat, drink, and be merry seizing the day that we see in Dead Poet Society or, frankly, in the world around us? What's the difference? Well, one is an expression of self-fulfillment, while the other is an expression of faith. One says, I've got to gobble up all the experiences and pleasures I can before I disappear into oblivion and lose my chance. The other says, the big and small pleasures that we enjoy in this life are gifts from God that I will joyfully and gratefully embrace. Many of you are going through transitions that you do not understand, times and seasons that are beyond your comprehension. For some of you, this is the time to weep and a time to mourn and a time to tear down and all the bad things on the list in the poem. The times of our lives are beyond our control. But rather than try to wrestle control away from God so that we can control our own destinies, we're encouraged to do two things here. First, as we already mentioned, seize the day. Take advantage of the times and seasons that we have and live joyfully, basking in all the blessings that God has given us. And second, we're encouraged to cast our burdens and frustrations back in the hands of God, to release that frustration and come to terms with the fact that God is God and I am not. That's what he means in verse 14 when he says, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. It's not in my control. 
But God does this so that we will revere him. The good news, though, is that the one on whom we cast all our burdens and frustrations is for us, not against us. He's not trying to trick us or toy with us, like verse 11 suggests. He doesn't set eternity in our hearts just so he can torture us. But he does it in order that we might pursue him with our whole lives. And I want to conclude by inviting you to read with me from uh, Romans chapter 8, just as a reminder of the fact that I may not be God, well, I am not God, (laughs) uh, and that even at frustrating times, we can rest assured knowing that we have a God who is working all things together for our benefit because he loves us so much. So would you join with me in reading responsibly these words from Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord.